we will begin with Leviticus 9 and eventually make our way all the way to Hebrews. I don't uh, get the opportunity to preach all that often, and I, I'm very privileged and, and blessed when I do have that. Sometimes I fear I've packed too much in, so you'll have to forgive me this morning. But today, in many regions throughout our country, I don't have to tell you this, but it's in my notes, and in many other nations, God's people are unable to worship together in a building. We are blessed to be, still be able to do that here today in St. Paul, Minnesota. The novel coronavirus is a real threat to many, and we do not want to minimize it. And I wanted to address this first so that because many of us are distracted, perhaps we're wondering or worrying about what normal life is going to look like in this pandemic. And I can't tell you what is going to happen, but I know that God is still on his throne. And he tells us to cast all of our anxieties upon him, for he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. That's the same text the pastor alluded to in, in his introduction. Um, we, we give our anxieties over to the Lord, so let's do that and place our anxious thoughts aside and in God's care and instead focus on what God has for us here today. The message I have today emphasizes why we would want to worship together. In fact, what we celebrate in our corporate worship together is something so rich that true Christians will not cease their worship even if they're unable to meet together. True Christians know that worship is not something done only in a temple or a church building. But as Jesus declared, we can worship God in spirit and in truth. And we can do this together in an auditorium like we are today or individually, in private or with our family. Now, some of us are self-proclaimed history buffs and we just can't stop thinking about comparing today's outbreak to events in the past, such as the 1918 Spanish influenza or the scourge of the Black Death that ravaged Europe. So far, our present situation is mild, thankfully, compared to either of those tragedies. For the message today, I'm going to do something similar. We're going to go back in time even further than the Middle Ages, I want us to enter the world of Old Testament Israel and experience their very first days of worshiping God together corporately as a nation. And by contemplating events described in Leviticus, we can gain a valuable perspective on what worship is and how privileged we truly are today to be God's people. So we're going to pray, and then we'll jump into Leviticus chapter 9 and begin here. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, we get to pray today um, when our president has declared a day of prayer. And that is a special thing that is a result of 
all that's going on in the world today. Lord, you are at work. You are wakening people up to how frail life is and how we don't have everything under control, but you do. And Lord, I just pray that we would trust in you as our schedules get sidelined and turned upside down. Lord, may our eyes go to you. Lord, may we not binge watch endlessly and hoard items and feud with others. Instead, Lord, let us take out your word and meditate therein. Lord, let us pick it up and if we haven't had time, Lord, make time or receive the time that you may give us in this crisis and read your word. And Lord, I just pray as we do some of that today together, Lord, that you would meet with us, that you would open the eyes of those who are blind or cold. Lord, we ask that you would draw people to you. Lord, I ask that you would reawaken a love in our hearts for you, God. I pray that you would have your will and way in the words that I say, that your Holy Spirit would have free reign. Lord, we do pray for the vulnerable people in our congregation. Lord, we pray that you'd protect them and provide for them during this crisis. Lord, and those that we may have that are our loved ones that are not with us, Lord, we ask that you would watch over them. Lord, I pray that you would draw our attention to your word, draw our attention to the events described in the book of Leviticus and ultimately the book of Hebrews. Lord, may you be lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So hopefully you're on page 87 in the Pew Bible or Leviticus chapter 9. And we'll just read the beginning of it and then we will uh, jump into the message and then come back. We will finish reading all the text that the bulletin has. So Leviticus chapter 9, verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. If you like to take notes, I have four basic points. Um, one is there's a plan to enjoy God's presence. A plan to enjoy God's presence and then there's a priesthood to atone for God's people. Priesthood to atone for God's people. Number three, a peril from ignoring God's purity. 
a peril from ignoring God's purity, and finally, a permanent solution, Christ, our better priest. Permanent solution, Christ, our better priest. So we'll begin with a plan to enjoy God's presence, and I want to sketch a quick background because we just kind of jumped into Leviticus chapter 9, and we're not preaching through the book, and you don't have the background, and so often we don't have time for the Old Testament. I'm, I appreciate that our pastor takes time to go through books in the Old Testament together with us because if you don't understand the Old Testament, so much that the New Testament has to say doesn't have the same meaning, doesn't have the same life and richness that you get if you understand more about what the Old Testament has to tell us. So I want to sketch a quick background to our passage that reviews a story that is familiar, I believe, and I hope, to many of us. And we go back to basically the beginning of the book of Exodus. And I'm going to be reading portions and excerpts. Don't feel like you have to uh, stay along. Um, If you are a friend of mine, I'll be sharing my notes. There's also going to be the sermon available to download if you need to fill out your notes. But um, we begin with God's people in bondage. That's how Exodus starts. God's people have been in Egypt for a couple hundred years at least, up to 400 years in bondage, and they are yearning for a savior, a deliverer. And God does deliver them through Moses. But the way he starts it all is the burning bush. Moses is God's ordained leader, but he doesn't know it yet. And God reveals himself in fire on a bush. The bush is not being killed through the fire. It's, it's a miracle. He goes and looks at this. He takes his shoes off and he stands before Almighty God. And God says, you are going to deliver my people. And God tells Moses among the many things he says in Exodus chapter 6, he says that Moses, you are going to redeem Israel with an He says, I'm going to redeem Israel with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. So there's a reason for the redemption. He wants to take them and be their God in a special way. And as as the story progresses, we get to the ten plagues, and Egypt releases the, the Israelites and lets them go. And then they uh, try to get them back and they cross the Red Sea on dry land. And God's presence is with them and destroys the Egyptian army. And so they escape. And now they're being led through the wilderness. And again, we see fire. We see God is with them in a fiery pillar. It's a glorious, bright cloud by day and a burning pillar by night, and it's the revelation of the presence of God. We also know this as, it's referred to as the Shekinah glory, God's special presence with them. And then God leads them through trials and provides for them, and and they have to believe in God through these difficulties, and then he finally brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, the very God of the universe reveals himself to the entire people 
of Israel. And he declares the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. He speaks those words and they can hear God speaking. And Exodus 24, 17 describes it this way. It says, The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So once again, God's revelation is cloaked in fire. There's fire on the mountain. And because this is how God revealed himself through the fire, all the people, even though they had seen God's mighty outstretched arm do such great wonders, they say to Moses in Deuteronomy 5, 25, they say, Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. And they say, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God has to say. And then come back and tell us. We don't want to go before God. He could kill us. Moses, can you go and be our mediator? Be our go-between. You go and hear what God has to say, and we'll do it. Just come back and tell us. Just don't let us have to endure the mighty, terrible presence of this holy God. So that's the backdrop to Leviticus 9, because from that comes a plan, a plan for God to have his presence be in such a way with his people that his people can be with him and he can be with his people without terrifying them. So this is the backdrop for the tabernacle. So much of the book of Exodus is uh, spent talking about the tent and how they set up the holy place and the most holy place and how to build the Ark of the Covenant and how to build the altar and what it looks like and what the laver should be and what the lampstand should be. And there's seven walnuts that are on the lampstand and they all have buds and blossoms. And, and all of this has a point. God is going to be in the tent with his people. And when he begins talking about the sanctuary, the tabernacle, this is what God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So the point of the tabernacle is God wants to dwell with his people. And so after giving all the instructions on the tabernacle, the altar, labor, lampstand, the table of showbread, and after giving instructions for all the special priestly garments that the priests are supposed to wear. This is how God concludes the first section of that in Exodus 29, verse 42 through 45. Exodus 29, 42 to 45. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And so the book of Exodus ends with this beginning to happen. Moses has the people of Israel bring the gifts and the, the 
craftsmen and they work, they build the tabernacle, they build the, all the, they make the priest's garments, they get everything ready, they set it all up, Moses sets it all up. And at the end of the book of Exodus, we find these words, Exodus 40, verse 33 through 35, so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And that's basically the end of Exodus. So now God is present with his people. The great cloud, that fiery pillar, now sets right in the tabernacle. But there's still a problem. No one can go in the tabernacle. Moses can't even go in. There's such brightness of God's glory that we can't actually approach him. So what are we going to do? You turn the page from Exodus to Leviticus, and that is where we end up. Leviticus says, okay, if you want to approach God, here are the sacrifices that you have to do. And he talks about the burnt offering and the sin offering. He talks about the peace offering and the grain offering, and we won't get into all the specifics about that. But the point is, God has a plan in redeeming Israel God wanted to dwell with them and let them enjoy his presence. But to accomplish this, a tabernacle was needed, and so was a priesthood. Now, you might wonder, why did it have to be a tent instead of a temple? Well, they were on a journey, and when the journey was ended, eventually they turned the tent into a, te into a temple um, later when the, king, when the kings were raised up in Israel. But for now, it was a temporary tabernacle that God was with his people as they were sojourning. So we have a plan. God wants to live with his people. And we've made a tabernacle. They have made a tabernacle. And God is now with his people, but there is no worship happening because we need to have point number two, a priesthood to atone for the people. And that's where Leviticus 8 and 9 comes in. So one side note, too, about the importance of the role of the priests is that in Exodus, the garments the priests are supposed to wear, the ordination ceremony about how they're going to be ordained, and they take blood and oil and put it on their thumb and their ear and their toe, and there's all this big ceremony. That takes up 80 verses to talk about that. And crossing the Red Sea and singing the song, a celebration about God destroying Egypt's army, that only takes up 52 verses. So something is really important about the role of the priests. And that's what Leviticus shows us here too. So before we get into the priesthood, I want to just talk about the priestly garments a little bit, just briefly, since we're talking about priests. In Exodus 28, they're detailed what they all are, and I'm just going to describe them and then quote a small little piece of verse about what that piece of garment was important about. First of all, the garments were made of fabrics that had gold strings and threads weaved into them. They were beautiful garments, and they were of the same sort of fabrics that the tabernacle itself was made of. 
special and devoted to God. And it says in Exodus 28, 2, that the garments were to put on Aaron and they were to be for his for glory and for beauty. So it was to separate the priests as to be glorious and beautiful for God. And then the first main piece of the garment is called an ephod. And it's like an apron. And this apron would go over the priest, and we don't exactly know exactly how it all fits. The point is it had a special um, responsibility for the priest. He has this office. Now, a priest, in a certain sense, was kind of like a butcher. They had a lot of sacrifices they did with animals, but that was part of the worship ceremony. And we're, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit, but this is a totally different era, and everyone reading that uh, and everyone seeing that would be totally normal to them to worship God through sacrifices. That was their normal. So there's these sacrifices. He's going to wear this apron, this ephod, and on it were shoulder pieces. And it's not like a general might have a star on his shoulder like this. It would be the whole shoulder, pretty much, would be covered front and back with a big piece, a shoulder piece. And on there were um, a big enough onyx stone or carnelian stone. We don't know exactly what the word refers to. And on that stone, it's a precious stone, were carved six of the tribes of Israel. And then on the other shoulder, the other six tribes of Israel. So he's bearing this, and it says in, in Exodus 28, 12, Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So he's like, I'm the priest for these people, these, these tribes. These, this is, I'm not the priest for the Hittites. I'm not the priest for the Canaanites. I'm the priest for the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad and the tribe of Dan, the tribe of uh, Joseph and, and all the different tribes that are on his shoulder. And then there is a breast piece, uh, almost like a breast plate, but it's not armor, that would be in the middle and it would take up most of his chest and it would actually had a pouch on the inside. It had the, the Urim and the Thummim which are very interesting, but we don't have time to talk about those. Um, some kind of means that, that he had to discern the Lord's will. But on the outside of the pouch was 12 more precious stones of different colors and different kinds. Now, they, they didn't have the mechanism we do to make everything polished so beautifully, but still to them it was beautiful, and they were able to engrave them once again. And each of the stones were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it says in Exodus 28:30, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. These were a picture to the people watching the priest do his work, and they were a reminder to the priest when he looks down, oh, yeah, I, you know, I'm representing this tribe. I'm representing these people before the Lord. My role is very significant. And then there is the robe of the ephod. We would call it kind of a surplus, except it extends farther than most of these outer kind of... A surplus is like if you're a Lutheran or some other higher church-type style, this big white cloth that is draped over the outside of their clothes, except for the priests that go all the way to his feet. And at the bottom would be bells and some kind of 
special decoration. And that was Exodus 28, 35. Its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord so that he does not die. So that's pretty important piece there. He kind of doesn't want to die. Um, so we don't know exactly know why, but that is what it is there for. And then there was a headpiece, and this perhaps is the most significant piece. And one of the commentators I read describes it like the pharaoh hat, where it doesn't really matter what the hat was, the pharaoh had. He always had like a serpent in gold right in the middle of his forehead, right? Something like that. They think it was a flower symbol, perhaps, on the priest. So there was a turban. They don't really describe the turban at all. They describe the frontlet, this piece of this gold plate or miter, as the old King James calls it. And it was always on just the high priest's head. And it said, holy to the Lord. Now, it's kind of, you have to be very careful to obey God and represent him when you have holy to the Lord emblazoned on your forehead, which is what the high priest of Israel had. And in Exodus 28, 38, it says, So he bears any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts, that they may be accepted before the Lord. So he's bearing, and also the word can refer to forgiving. This, this is allowing him to be able to enter the tabernacle and receive forgiveness and have his gifts accepted on behalf of the people. Underneath the ephod and the robe were a white linen tunic, which was the normal thing people wore, except all the Israelites did not wear linen. Very few of them would have. Most of them would have worn wool. Um, linen was more expensive, and it was hard to make wool white, but linen could be made white, and these were white. And also there were linen breeches um, to cover themselves so that they would not bear guilt and die. However, there were no shoes. And that could be because Moses approached God at the burning bush and was told to take off his sandals because the ground that you are on is holy ground. So that is what the priest looks like. And in Leviticus 8, they get dressed up and then their sacrifice is done for them. There's blood put on their thumb and their, their toe and their, their uh, ear, which represents their whole body. And they're ready. And now they've done seven days of special sacrifices to get the tabernacle ready, to get the priests accepted. And then on the eighth day, Leviticus 9. And we'll just jump down a little bit here. So we started in verse 7. I'm, I'm running out of time. So I'm going to jump down to verse 15. This is speaking of what Aaron is doing. So then Aaron presented the people's offering, Leviticus 9, and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh 
Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. And so then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So like Moses came down from Sinai, Aaron comes down from this altar in front of the people. And now Israel can be witness to this. He and Moses enter the tent. So for a whole week, the tent has been set up. God's glory is there and no one can approach it. But now all the sacrifices have been done. The priests have been ordained. And the very first sacrifices for the people, for atonement of the people, have been done. The very first corporate worship service before God, Jehovah, that's recorded in Scripture. And they get down off of the altar. And it's kind of weird because they've done this killing, but there is no fire in the altar. And they get down off the altar and they go into the tent and they pray, they see the Lord, they come out and they bless the people. And God sends fire from heaven and starts the burnt offering. And in fact, in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, it says, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. This fire, every, every intimation we have from Scripture is that God started the fire, and the fire was kept by the priesthood, kept burning, kept burning, even in the darkest times of the judges, kept burning, kept burning, kept burning. God started the fire, and they tended the fire. That was the special role of the priest. And the response from the people were to fall on their face, to be filled with joy. Now, this fire is now controlled, and it's mediated to us. It's in the sacrifice. I can now come before God. I can say, I have sinned, and here is an animal that is going to bear my sin. And the priest who says, holy to the Lord, who has my tribe's name on his shoulder and on his breastplate, he is going to say, I forgive you. He's going to kill my animal. He's going to burn it on the altar. And in some of these sacrifices, I get to eat in front of God with the priest. He will take a portion and give me a portion. And I know that this fire was started by God. We have the true God, and I can worship him. And what's interesting is that we think of three meals a day. Back then, they thought of two meals a day, the morning meal and the evening meal. And guess what? There's a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. 
And every single one of them involved the priests eating in God's presence. So God was getting a meal and the priests were joining in God's meal every day. And what's wonderful about this, the priest mediating God's blessing, is that this continued throughout Israel. When they finally get to the point where God gives them a king, a king worthy, a king who has um, been transformed by God's grace. He's flawed and he's not allowed to build the temple, but he saves the money and all the resources for it. King David, he, he has a mission from God to build a temple, which was all along foretold and planned in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, that there's going to be a place where God is going to have a temple. And so now the tabernacle can be put away. And Solomon prepares this grand temple and thousands of sacrifices, not just a couple lambs like in the tabernacle ceremony here. But Solomon stands up as the king for God's people and he delivers one of the great intercessory prayers in all of the Bible. And in 2 Chronicles 7.1, after seven days of doing sacrifices of thousands and thousands of lambs on the new altar. Second Chronicles 7, 1 Chronicles 7.1, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So there's a reenactment of this ceremony and God sends fire down from heaven again. And so God's people can now worship him good things have come and they've started for the very first time. This fire and this ceremony will be done hundreds of times, day and morning and night, morning and night, morning and night. God's people worshiping him at the tabernacle and then the temple. God's people can now worship him with a priesthood installed and animal sacrifices in place so they may approach the holy God in fear and wonder but all does not go to plan. God's wrath still burns against impurity. If you go back to Leviticus 9, chapter 10, the very next verse, verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So there's a peril from ignoring God's purity consuming fire. Uh, That phrase was used earlier in Exodus. They said, our God is a consuming fire. Here we see it in action. Yes, we can now approach God through the priest, but if we don't approach God the right way, according to his word, 
we will still be subject to the fiery judgment of God. God is going to be glorified either in judging the sin or in receiving the accepted worship. Either way, God is lifted up to his great, high, sanctified, holy state, status, and we are bowed down before him. So from that goes the rest of the book of Leviticus, all these purity laws, the clean and the unclean foods, the uh, people with skin diseases and people that have the diseases get purified or not, and, and what to do to be able to maintain a ritual purity so that you might be able to enjoy God. Even the priests, they could get unpure. And in fact, Aaron uh, believes that he is impure at this point and does not finish the sacrifice all the way like Moses had thought he needed to. The priests are supposed to judge and stand for the people about what's pure and what's not. And we see that in Leviticus 10, eventually, Aaron does pass that test. He is an acceptable priest before God. So this desire to be pure culminates in Leviticus chapter 16. And in fact, Leviticus chapter 16 is the central chapter in Leviticus. It's the central chapter in the book of the Pentateuch, the first five books. It's the, the, it's the pinnacle of the point of God redeeming Israel is so that he can atone for their sin. And in Leviticus 16, it talks about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And it starts out saying, in Leviticus 16.1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come. And then he details that once a year, on a day of fasting, after much sacrifices and ceremonies have been done, Aaron is going to bring blood into the holiest place one time a year. Only Aaron, only the high priest. And then he will be able to expiate or to atone for the sins of the people of Israel for that whole year, once a year. Because God is that pure. He can live with them, but he can only experience one person one time, once a year. Because God is so holy. So there is still a peril and that peril unfolds throughout the history of Israel. And eventually, we get to the point where there's great apostasy in the, in, in the northern tribes of Israel. And God sends Elijah, the prophet. And I don't have time to talk about it all. But God sends Elijah to bring his people back. And he reenacts this ceremony. Fire falls down from heaven on the sacrifice for Jehovah not the sacrifice for Baal. And God's fiery presence in Ezekiel chapter 1, and then later in the book, we see these fiery chariot of God, these wheels, and in there is the fiery presence of God. And Ezekiel sees that leave the temple. At the exile, when God's people are conquered and taken into exile, God's presence leaves the temple. The fiery presence is gone. It stays with God's people, though, in exile, and then he sees a prophecy that it's going to come back into a restored, purified temple, Ezekiel 43. 
But so Israel's experience of God's presence was imperfect and incomplete. Their priests were marred by sin. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves first because they were faulty and sinful. And then the people as a whole ultimately abandoned God and were sent into exile. And the prophesied return of God's special presence never materialized as the rebuilt temple was not lit by God's fire. And instead, the old men who remembered the old temple wept when they saw the new one. It was not a comparison. How can God's people worship God without his fiery presence? And that's the end of the Old Testament. But, of course, the story doesn't end there because Jesus Christ came. And that's our fourth point, a permanent solution, Christ, our better priest. And I want to go to Hebrews 9 and read some verses, and I could read so many more verses in Hebrews, but I wanted to lay this groundwork so you could understand the background of what's happening in Hebrews. But Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, and I should say Hebrews 9 is on page 1006 in the Pew Bible, 1006. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then if you jump down to verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then I'm going to jump down to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We don't have time to get into everything, but 
we see in the book of Hebrews that there's a better tabernacle, a better tent, the heavenly one, the real one that it's a pattern of. There's a better sacrifice. Christ sacrificed himself on the cross, which is better blood. And there's a better redemption, an eternal redemption. And there's a better priest. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. He's without sin. He doesn't have to offer multiple sacrifices. He offered one sacrifice and he sat down forever at the right hand of God. And there's better access. We don't just get to go to the outer court and give our animal and see the priest go into the holy place. We can go into the holiest of holy places because the veil was torn when Jesus died on the cross. The new and living way was opened up when his flesh was torn apart on the cross. We now have access with confidence, as was read earlier in Hebrews chapter 4. We can draw near before God's throne because we have a great priest. And then one other point is that Christ renewed the fire. John the Baptist said that Jesus Christ would be the one who would come and would baptize you with fire. And that happened in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of God's church. God, or Jesus Christ, sent fire that came down from heaven, fiery tongues of fire, as the Holy Spirit indwelt the church. Fire was on the head of each believer. And the church is also being built up as a holy temple for the Lord, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and many other places, Ephesians chapter 2, we are the holy habitation of the Lord. Each of us, individually, we are a temple, a tabernacle, where God's Shekinah glory is, at, is here with us, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in their midst, Jesus said. And the Holy Spirit is within us. And ultimately, the fiery nature of Christ's presence will be the light of the new Jerusalem, which will not have a temple, because the Lamb and the God on the throne will be the light for the people. There is no need for sacrifices and temples anymore because the Lamb who was slain is on the throne and reigning, and we will be able to experience the ultimate worship unmediated directly when we see Christ face to face. So in closing, we are so privileged to have the fulfillment of what Hebrews says the Old Testament shadows and types represented. They saw the reality pictured for them and it, these sacrifices pointed to something, pointed to something bigger. And we are privileged to be able to see the beginning fulfillment of that. We can approach God anytime we want through our great high priest because of his sacrifice. And I don't want to, I don't want to be remiss to, to leave out the fact that Christ's sacrifice was on behalf of his people. And those who repent of their sin and trust him, he takes their judgment. Like Nadab and Abihu were struck down before God, 
He is struck down on the cross for us rather than us being struck down. So our sin can be atoned for because of our high priest if we trust Christ. That's what being a Christian is, not being perfect, not being holy, not being better than other people. It's bowing the knee before God, worshiping him, receiving Jesus Christ as the sacrifice on our behalf, as our priest, the one who our name is on his shoulders and on his heart as he represents us. And so one day we will join redeemed Israel if we trust him around God's throne for all time. I hope you are encouraged by this glimpse of the grandeur of God. His fiery presence will bring judgment and should purge us of lingering sin as we don't want to face the experience that 1 Corinthians 3 talks about of being saved yet so as by fire where all of the works that we did are burned up. His fire can also warm us and fill us and enthrall us. And I hope that you will go back to Exodus and Leviticus with newfound wonder and awareness of what God is doing or that you'll jump into the book of Hebrews having thought about what we have said and revisit how fresh and wonderful Christ is as he's so much superior to the Old Testament experience. God is drawing people to himself and ultimately God came down, Christ came down himself to take on the judgment for us and to bring God's presence to us because Jesus tabernacled with us. John 1.14, and we beheld the glory of God in him, the glory of grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words, or th this word of God, this passage. Words fail to describe how great your presence is, Lord, and how privileged we are. Lord, we can worship you in spirit and in truth at home and together here. And Lord, thank you so much that you, you gave yourself to us to take the fiery judgment on our behalf. Lord, may we yearn to have hearts that worship and follow you. Lord, may you forgive us and receive us. Lord, may people come to faith today for the first time, Lord, even. We ask that you'd be lifted up in Jesus' name, amen.